Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter 7. <coughs> Am I coming through alright on the sound? Yeah? Cool. Just while you're finding your way there, uh, it was uh, a couple of months ago now, it was a number of months ago now, I was working my way through a, a DVD box set of a particular TV program. I'd borrowed it off of my brother. And uh, you know the way it works, you get two or three episodes per disc. Uh, and then obviously when you've Finish one, you move on to the next one. And I've been working my way through this particular series, finished uh, one DVD, went to, took the next one out of the box, uh, put it in the DVD player, uh, and started watching it. And then I suddenly realized I had no idea what was going on. I didn't understand really where the story was, didn't understand who some of the people were in it. And what had happened was, it's Luke's box set, so I'm going to blame him. He had put the DVDs in the wrong place. So I'd actually skipped about two or three or four uh, episodes ahead, so I had no idea what was happening. I think the concerning thing was it took me about 20-25 minutes of watching this program before I even realised that I didn't have a clue what was going on. But the reason I'm saying this is, like Mike said, uh, we're coming back to a series that started uh, two, two years ago, back in 2014, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which we um, see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the way that we've been doing it is we've been focusing on a different chapter per year. Uh, so we're at chapter 7 now. I just want to, we just wanted to acknowledge that because particularly if you're fairly new to the church, relatively new to the church, or if uh, you're a visitor this morning, it might feel like me watching that TV program where you're like 20 minutes in, you're thinking, I have no idea what's going on or where we're coming from at this point. So just wanted to make it clear that's what the series is about. Uh, that's why we're starting in chapter 7 and not in chapter 5. It's something that we've been coming back to over these number of years. So please, if, if in 20 minutes you're thinking, have I missed something, then hopefully I've helped uh, just to alleviate that in a minute. If in 20 minutes I'm thinking, have I missed something, then maybe we're in a bit more trouble. So let's refresh our memories then about Sermon on the Mount. So this is a sermon that Jesus delivered to his followers uh, up on a mountainside. And what Jesus does is he teaches them about the kingdom of God. Essentially, he's saying, this is what life under the rule and reign of God looks like. And this is what he unpacks. I've heard it described as kind of Jesus, his manifesto. This is what life in the kingdom should look like. When I was doing my, lead, my leadership training, we spent uh, two days solid just working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And we were coming at it with the understanding that the Sermon on the Mount is it's a description of the grace-empowered life of the kingdom. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. This is what the grace of God produces in us. And this is what the Holy Spirit empowers us for. And hopefully what we've been discovering uh, over these past few years as we've been working our way through this series is that it touches really on the entire range of our lives. It's the personal things in our lives. It's about the way in which we engage with God and relate to God. It's about the way in which we relate to others among the church and outside the church. It zooms in and out on all different kinds of perspectives and touches on really every area of life. So we're going to pick up again this morning at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be, uh, do, I think we've got six or seven weeks working our way through this chapter. So let's start from the beginning of chapter 7 from verse 1. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to his followers. He says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We've got no gentle introduction here for us. As we come in in chapter 7, Jesus, he, his words, he gets straight to the point. He's really, he's pulling no punches. He starts with this, he says, do not judge. Do not judge. But really, before we go any further, we need to understand what this judgment that Jesus is talking about, and this, this uh, judgment that Jesus is warning us about, what he's actually talking about and what that looks like. What Jesus isn't saying is that we shouldn't make evaluations of situations. We shouldn't make evaluations of people or be discerning in understanding what people's character or nature is like. The reason I say this is because in just a few verses later and in a few weeks, we're going to be seeing how Jesus actually says we're meant to discern false prophets to be able to, 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 be able to identify people that would present themselves as one thing when really they're something else. So we do need to be aware of people and we do need to be making these evaluations. But there's a certain type of judgment that Jesus is absolutely against and is saying that cannot be a part of my kingdom. I think what he's saying is this. We're not to be those that condemn. We're not to be those that sort of pass judgment on people as if we're standing in the position of God. I think it can sound a little bit like this. I can't believe he did that. Or how dare she think it's acceptable to say that. But often with this uh, caveat, either whether we say this out loud or whether we're thinking it, I would never act in that way. It's that kind of condemning, harsh judgment that we make on people. It's that sort of prideful condemnation that views oneself as being better than others. I think it's fairly easy to slip into, which is why Jesus is warning us against this. I can't believe they behave like that. That's not, that's not the way that I would be. That's not the attitude I would have or the behaviour that I would have. It's judgment that's critical. It's judgment that is harsh, that's unloving. When, hopefully this doesn't happen very often, but when I'm driving, I can sometimes find myself being very critical of other drivers because of uh, the, way that the way that they're driving. I sometimes, you know, think someone's bit too close up behind me I feel like they should be giving me a bit more space I don't like the maneuver they pulled I don't like the way that they're driving and I can I can vent this frustration either to myself or to whoever's in the car with me and in my spirit I'm adamant that no one in any other vehicle would ever think that of me when they see me driving past I'm convinced they would never think that of me but you know what I'm wrong I'm absolutely wrong, because so often the things I pull people up on, so often the things that I'm critical of other people for, every now and then I realise I'm just as prone as anyone else to doing exactly the same thing. I'm just not always aware of it. And when I'm made aware of that of myself, do you know what? My attitude changes. And the way that I, I think about people changes. Again, this judgement that Jesus is speaking about will often be harsh, it can find its expression in finger-pointing, gossip, spitefulness, cynicism, sharpness, negativity. Can you see there's nothing positive about any of those things? 
but it's very easy for that to creep in into our lives and also into the life of the church and we need to guard against that. There's a guy called Leon Morris, he wrote a, a commentary on the book of Matthew and on this particular passage he's saying don't judge doesn't mean don't think. It's not what Jesus is saying. Don't judge doesn't mean don't think. And he goes on to reference another commentator who's saying that this command is not a requirement to be blind but rather a plea to be generous. It's not to be ignorant or ignore the, the reality of how things are, but it's about the attitude that we have, the spirit that we have, and actually we're looking to be generous towards people, not harsh, not critical, not unfair. I'd say that there's nothing generous about spitefulness, gossip, and cynicism. We're not wanting the best for people in those things. We're not looking to serve them the best way that we can. There's nothing in that sort of attitude that wants to bring restoration or freedom or anything good for that other person. Really, it only seeks to condemn and to shame. That's what those kind of attitudes bring about. And then Jesus brings in this really excellent illustration. When I was at primary school, uh, I, we used to have a drama club that would take place after school once a week or so. And sometimes what we'd do, we'd just be given kind of a theme or a topic to work around, and it would just be like an hour of just improvising. Essentially, it's just play with a theme. And we'd just, uh, we'd just kind of get involved with this. And I remember this one time, um, I can't remember the entirety of, of the story, but what had happened, I was someone who was unwell or I was injured. I was laying down on a bench as if I was in hospital. Someone else was tending to me, giving me medical aid, and I'm not quite sure what they were doing. I think it was some weird sort of Star Trek kind of vibe they had going on in their mind. But they picked up a... Uh, a jar and were kind of waving it over me. I'm not, I really don't know what they were doing. It was a bit odd. Uh, and they were, and it was what we were doing. And then the top of this jar came off and the contents of the jar just fell in my face. And it, it wasn't anything really nice. It wasn't like a jar full of cotton or rabbits or something fluffy and nice. It was a jar full of ground white pepper that just fell in my face and just went right in my eyes so when Jesus starts speaking about specks in the eye I'm like I'm right with you here Jesus I know where you're coming from I know what you're talking about uh, this is serious business when we're talking about stuff in eyes we've got to deal with those specks I'm kind of like I'm really there but Jesus uses this wonderful illustration it's brilliant it's so over the top uh, in a sense it's it's kind of absurd and ridiculous this scenario that he presents here He's talking about someone who's seen a speck. It says someone who's seen a speck in their brother's eye. It's important that we, we realise when Jesus is saying this, he's talking about uh, it, seeing it in your brother's eye. I think really he's talking about, he's dealing with relationships within the family of God here. How we're, how we're to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. In the sense of not being judgmental, not being critical, but how best we can serve one another and build one another up. So we've got this picture of someone, they, they've seen a speck in their brother's eye. They've almost become fixated on this, uh, on this speck in, in, the, in their eye, which really represents you know, something that they're, they're, they're aware of, they're not happy with, something that's a problem for them. They see something in their, the, their brother's attitude or their behavior, something they just really want to, you know, something that's really niggling at them and they just want to see it sorted out in this other person. And they've spotted this speck. But they're totally unaware of this log. Jesus says that it's like you've got this log or plank in your own eye. But yet you're so fixated on this little something that's in your brother's eye. 
And it's not to say that the speck should be ignored. It's not to say that it should be left alone. As I found out all those years ago, do you know what? When something comes in your eye, it really needs to get out. You don't want to leave it there. It needs to be dealt with. But rather what this illustration does is it draws into perspective that the attitudes, the behaviours, the habits, those things that we can seek to condemn in others or those things that we can really want other people to get sorted out in their own lives. Do you know what? Sometimes they can be the very weaknesses that we're either unaware of or do not want to face up to in ourselves. And Jesus is saying, actually, you need to get the right perspective here. Have a look at yourself. Before you start looking at other people, have a look at yourself. And Jesus uses this wonderful tool of hyperbole. I had to use the word hyperbole in here because it's one of my favourite words to say. But also because it's just the right word to use because hyperbole just means gross exaggeration. It's something that's way over the top. And it's not that Jesus is just really bad at illustrations. It's actually he's really good at illustrations. And it might seem way over the top. And it might seem ridiculous. But that's because Jesus is trying to prove a point in saying, how can you be those that notice these things in other people's lives, but yet you don't notice it in yourselves? It's as ridiculous as this situation that Jesus presents. So after I had pepper poured in my face, it needed to come out. And someone very helpfully came along with an eye bath and flushed it out and and cleaned it out. But here's the thing, I'm kind of, when I'm looking at what Jesus is saying here, I'm thinking, yeah, we need to deal with these specks and we need to deal with these things in our lives that aren't right and they need to be flushed out and we need to care for people and, and do it and do it well. But if someone had come up to me at that point and they had something literally sticking out of their eye and they're saying, look, let me come and help you get this stuff out of your eye. I'd be thinking, you're not the right person to be doing this. Are you sure you really want to be focusing on what's going on here when, look, you've got some stuff that you really need to get sorted out for yourself? And again, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, are you really in the position to be calling your brother or sister out on this thing in in their life when you haven't even... It's not the fact that you haven't dealt with what's going on in your life. It's like you're not even aware of these attitudes or this sin or these weaknesses that are going on in your life. It is ridiculous for someone to be so focused and so preoccupied with getting someone else fixed while they're totally oblivious to their own state. Why, Jesus is saying, why are you offering to carry out sort of effectively minor first aid on someone else when spiritually you're in need of some major surgery? Let's get this right. He's saying, let's get this right, people. And using this illustration, Jesus just completely demolishes the position of the critic. It just shows up criticism, unhelpful criticism, ungodly criticism for exactly what it is. You know, it's very clear that Jesus hates hypocrisy. Hopefully that's come through as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. He calls people out as being hypocrites an awful lot. And he also warns us to not be like the hypocrites. It's something that comes through, as I say, time and time again through this Sermon on the Mount. And again, he uses it straight to the point, pulling no punches. Jesus says, if you're like that person who doesn't even recognise the plank in their own eye, yet so fixated on the speck in the eye of your brother or sister, he says, you are a hypocrite. 
It's a strong word. You're a hypocrite. You're an actor. You're fake. He's saying you don't really care about your brother or sister because you don't really care about sin. He's saying if you were really concerned with sin, like you may say you are because you want your brothers and sisters to be working things out with God and walking well with God, if you were really concerned with sin, you'd be concerned about your own sin, not just the sin in other people's lives. If you were really concerned with how people were walking with God, whose walk should you be looking at first? You should be looking at your own walk first. If you truly want to help your brothers and sisters, deal with yourself first. That's the right way that this should be done. If you've ever been on, on a flight, been on an aeroplane, when they're doing the, the pre-flight announcements and, you know, the, in case of emergency, these are the things, you've got exits here and here. And then there's, they say about when, um, if the oxygen masks fall from the ceiling, what do they say about the order in which they're meant to be put on? It says, put yours on first, and then if there's anyone else that needs assistance, help them. There's a very good reason why they say that. It's because actually if you've put that on yourself, you're in a much better position you're in a much better condition to be able to help other people. If, you're, if you don't help yourself first, you're actually putting yourself in a very vulnerable situation. And I just, for me, as I was thinking this through, I just thought that's really helpful. In terms of, if, in terms of judgment and criticism, wanting to help, wanting to help and serve people uh, moving on in their walk with God. Actually, let's make sure we've got ourselves right first. Because actually when we do that, we're in a much better place. We're in a much better position to be able to, to serve one another. And actually, it means we're serving from a much better place with a very healthy motivation. But completely contrary to the motivation that Jesus has already called out at the beginning of this chapter. Do you know what? It's right that we should encourage one another to live godly lives. It's absolutely right that we should encourage one another in that. We should be encouraging one another to be growing and maturing with each and every one of us becoming more and more like Jesus. If that's not what we want for people within this church, then we've missed something massively. We should be for one another, wanting one another to be growing and maturing. But there are right and wrong ways in which we can go about this in serving one another. Galatians 6, uh, 6 not 16, that doesn't exist. Galatians 6 verse 1 to 2 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it could be that in Jesus, this picture, this metaphor that Jesus uses, could be that there are brothers and sisters with sin in their life, with specks in their eyes, but what Galatians is saying, actually, you who are spiritual, sorry, you who are spiritual, those who are mature, those who are growing in God, yes, help bring restoration. But you see what he says about the spirit. It's not harsh. It's not condemning. It's a spirit of gentleness. And all the while, and again, it's this whole thing of, do you know what? You've got to keep an eye on yourself as well. You've got to be aware with what's going on in your life. You've got to be aware of where your vulnerabilities are, of where your weaknesses are, of where you're struggling here. Be aware of those things as well. You know, when thinking about relationships 
in, in terms of, uh, for those who are followers of Jesus, we can think about relationships vertically in terms of how we relate to God. The Bible says an awful lot about how we're to relate to God. So we can think vertically, but we can also think about relationships horizontally, the way that we're to relate to one another. The Bible, again, says an awful lot about how we're to relate to one another. So we've got these relationships with God and with one another. But these aren't mutually exclusive. We, they're not isolated relationships that we work out in isolation from one another. And it would be absolutely wrong and dangerous to see it as that because, in fact, they interact with one another. Rob Warner, he wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount. He says that it's an insufficient fulfillment of the great sermon to be close to God but intolerant of other people or to be loving towards men and women but indifferent to God. Above all, the way that we relate to others needs to be informed by the way in which God relates to us. So when thinking about uh, bringing correction, when thinking about serving one another, helping one another to press on in godliness and holiness, in pursuing Jesus, sometimes it might be, that again, that correction needs to come or something needs to be said. The way in which we're to do that, the way in which we're to relate to, to one another has to flow out of the way that God relates to us. Because if we understand the way that God relates to us, the way that God views us, the way that God treats us, then that means that we're going to be able to serve one another and to relate to one another in a much more godly way. So the question then is, how does God relate to us? Let's go through a few verses that I think just help to unpack a little bit of what this is. We can't cover all of that this morning, but we'll do some. Psalm 103, verse 10 to 13, says this. It says that God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions from us. God doesn't deal with us the way that actually our, our behavior and our, um, would actually deserve. That's not the way that God deals with us. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would, would count slowness, but he is patient towards you. I'm ever more thankful, day by day, I'm ever more thankful that God is patient with me. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our, about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We have this relationship with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of God's grace that he pours out upon us. That's how God relates to us. You see, condemnation does not fit with the gospel of grace. It doesn't fit in the kingdom of God. It's not part of God's kingdom. Another one, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest, speaking about Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you see, this is the way that God relates to us. We can come before the throne of God with confidence, not because of anything we've done, but because we've received mercy and grace from God. Not only that, Jesus sympathises with us in our weaknesses. So surely we should be those that sympathise with one another in our weaknesses as well. Hebrews 12, 5-11, speaking about discipline, particularly the discipline that comes from God. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we'll stop there with that one. But again, even in terms of discipline, God's motivation is one of love. It's because he loves us. Patience, grace, mercy, love, sympathising with weaknesses. This is how God relates to us. Isn't that wonderful? That's how God relates to us. We don't deserve that, but that's how he relates to us. And because that's the way that God relates to us, this needs to inform the way that we relate to others. The way in which we judge judge others will be the way in which we're judged. Going back right to the beginning of what Jesus says, the way that we judge others is the way that we'll be judged. Whatever measure we use... It will be measured to us. When we judge people in that condemning, harsh, finger-pointing kind of a way, whatever standards we've decided that we will measure people by, those are the standards by which we'll be judged. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a fairly sobering challenge. It's a fairly sobering word that Jesus is presenting, and it's one that we really need to think about and contemplate. Rob Warner, who I mentioned a moment ago, he says uh, that such teaching should stop the mouths of judgmentalists and gossips. Faced with such a daunting prospect, how dare we be so sweeping and cavalier in our judgment of others? The more we know that we need God to deal with us with mercy, patience and grace, the more these qualities should inform the way we respond to the deficiencies of others as we fully appreciate what God has done for us, the way that God deals with us, surely that should inform the way that we are with other people. Now we come to this verse, verse 6, where Jesus suddenly starts talking about dogs and pigs. I'd say this is a verse that is perhaps one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to know what to do with it, to know what to do with. It's very challenging. And it can leave us asking this question, what do we do here? I think in the context of the verses we've already looked at, we know that Jesus is concerned with our discernment, how we make judgments, that there's an appropriate way to make judgments. We need to remember that we're not called, uh, we're not called to be blind or ignorant, but to be those who think and discern appropriately and in a godly way. But clearly in verse 6, Jesus' focus regarding judgment shifts. It's like for, for what we've been looking at this morning, again, I feel it's talking, how do we relate to one another as brothers and sisters? Uh, 
And but now it, it's like the focus of the, uh, Jesus' focus shifts. You see, into the Jewish culture that Jesus was speaking, when he's speaking about dogs, uh, they would have understood that not to be dogs that, that we, we might understand, nice, domesticated, cuddly, friendly, man's best friend kind of pets. When Jesus was saying this, the kind of dog that would have come to mind would have been the wild, uh, the, the dogs that lived on the street, the scavengers, that, those kind of dogs that you really wouldn't want to get near or have anything to do with. They were considered to be unclean. Pigs also, in that culture, were considered to be unclean animals. They were scavengers. They were dirty. You wouldn't have anything to do with them. There's no way that holy things would have been thrown to dogs as if they were common things. And then when Jesus is talking about pearls, what pearls represent are the truths of the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. Now, the most traditional explanation of these verses that I came across when I was preparing, and what came across most often, is that, yes, the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached, but there are some who, when they're presented with the truth, they just adamantly reject it, probably with some sort of real contempt, vicious contempt, and in doing so, they attack the believer, they attack the one who's presented it to them. So it's calling out specific, certain types of individuals. Sort of people whose only intent is mockery or ridicule. Those who are just adamantly rejecting the gospel. Jesus is saying there are certain people who are like this. We need to be discerning here. Because there are certain people who are like this. And when Jesus is saying, don't cast your pearls before these, do not give to what is holy to people who are like this, I think Jesus is saying, actually, for people like this, there are people like this, either that we, that we shouldn't give the truths of the gospel to them because they're unable to accept it, because they're unwilling to accept it, or that we should not indefinitely continue proclaiming to the gospel to those who just adamantly reject it in hostile and volatile ways. Is the way that it's coming across. And that would be the traditional understanding of it. Can you see why I'm saying this is quite hard for us to understand? Well, what do we do with this here? But it seems to be the, the most likely meaning. But we also need to look at the life of Jesus. Jesus willingly spoke to people. Not everyone appreciated or accepted the gospel. Many people rejected what he, what he said. Many people were offended by what he said. He even had people turn on him as well. So it might suggest that actually the kind of people that Jesus is talking about here, this kind of situation, is a fairly rare situation. When, when we can, I think we can, we can see what Jesus is talking about in situations when Jesus is actually put before two people. The first one is Pilate. When Jesus is brought before Pilate and charged with blasphemy, Pilate asks him what seem like sincere questions. Jesus answers him. Jesus answers him with the truth. Jesus answers him appropriately. Now, Pilate, despite his failings, he saw Jesus as an innocent man. He sought to free him. He said, I can see there's no reason why there's no charge against this man. So actually, he was sincere in his questioning of Jesus. Jesus answered him with the truth. Compare that with Herod. Jesus was brought to Herod. Herod wasn't interested in finding out the truth about Jesus at all. What Herod wanted, he wanted to simply see Jesus perform some miracles. 
do some wonders, almost like, right, well, if you're going to go, well, let's just see some of this stuff that you're doing before. There was nothing that was sincere about him. When he, uh, and so when he questioned Jesus, Jesus didn't answer him. He didn't present him with the truth. Herod dressed Jesus up in mock robes of royalty, treated him with contempt and sent him back to Pilate. Can you see the difference between the two guys here and the way that Jesus dealt with it? Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up in this way. He said, you answer the questions of a pilot, but you say nothing to a Herod. It's just something to be considering here. It could be quite helpful. I'll say this. This is not to say that, that people don't change. This is not to say that God does not work in people and soften people's hearts. And actually, for some people here, your story might be, actually, I was really hardened against God at some point in my history. I would have been someone that would have maybe been quite volatile and, and might have rejected the gospel when it was presented to me. So I say, do you know what? God can change even the hardest of hearts. Just when you look at, look at Paul, the apostle, you see that as soon as he encountered Jesus, his life is just absolutely transformed. So I think what Jesus is saying here, we need to be mindful of not applying it in in an unhelpful way where we just immediately write people off if they reject us or if we feel uh, that we've had a bad experience with them. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But what we do need is we need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit to give us discernment, to really to be able to discern the nature and character of people. And even at times it might be appropriate that there could be a time where we need to move on, where we just say, okay, God, I'm just going to leave this with you for now. I'm not going to keep hammering on with this because they're, they're just, just the way they're accepting it, they're treating it with contempt. And actually, I want to, I want to handle the gospel well. I want to hold the gospel well. Uh, and I want to, want to present it well. So, as I mentioned, it's a hard verse to know what to deal with, but that's not a reason to not engage with it. I didn't want us to do all of the Sermon on the Mount apart from verse 6 of chapter 7. That wouldn't be right. Just because something is challenging and it might be hard for us to work out what to do with it doesn't mean we don't engage with it. It might just mean we might just need to come back to it and and kind of really think it through and, and wrestle it through. What I don't want to do is to leave things feeling fairly negative at this point because I don't think, again, I don't think that's what Jesus was intending. And actually what we draw out of that verse 6 is that the gospel needs to be handled and held with discernment and care not because the gospel is the gospel is fragile but because it's so precious because it's so wonderful because it's this great treasure it's not that the gospel can't stand up for itself the gospel is robust and true and sure and secure and firm it's not fragile but it's precious And we need to see it as precious. We need to just allow ourselves to to just come back to the wonder of what it is that Jesus has done for us. It's this gospel that's restored us to relationship with God. Where we're being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Where God deals with us with mercy, patience and grace. And surely these qualities should inform the way in which we relate to one another can we have the band up please I just would love to pray for us as the band are getting ready
think that there's a lot that's come out of this. I know for myself as I was preparing that it's a very challenging word. It's a very sobering word. I think it calls for a lot of, uh, you know, self-reflection, understanding where, where we're at in our walk with God, understanding what our lives are like. Is there anything actually that's, that, that's that, um, either in our attitudes or our behavior or our thinking that's really incompatible with the kingdom of God, that we just need to get right with God? Because actually there's just such wonderful scope and freedom for us to be moving on in our relationships with God. But I want to say this. Saying this as a believer, but I'm saying this as an elder. I don't want this church to be a place of harsh criticism, of gossip or finger pointing. That's not the type of people that we're going to be. That's not the type of people that Jesus calls us to be. We need to be a people who are generous to one another. We're not blind or ignorant to the reality of what's going on, but we want to treat one another with love, generosity, mercy, grace, wisdom. That's what we want. Doesn't that sound amazing? If we could be a kind of people who are striving to do that. Doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right in every situation, but we want to be moving on in that direction, the way that Jesus calls us to be. Amen? Brilliant. Can we stand up? Let's get ourselves ready to worship. I'm just going to pray quickly and then hand over to to Ian and the team.